I'm Robin Shannon, and on today's Fordham Conversations, I continue my discussion with Michael Virgentino about his book, Freedom Land USA, The Definitive History. In it, the author discusses the rise and fall of the 1960s history-themed amusement park, Freedom Land USA, which some considered the East Coast version of Disneyland. Speaking of the music, um, much like Disneyland has that song, It's a Small World After All, associated with it, Freedom Land also had music to capture the spirit of the park. So how did the Freedom Land record album come about, Mike? Well, it was created by George Weiss and Julie Stein, who are well known for their work on Broadway as uh, writing music and writing lyrics. Well, they were commissioned to do the album. And they had some popular singers of the day record original songs that they wrote that touched on each of the themed areas. And as you walked through the theme areas, the music from that area would be playing in the background. Uh, as you walk through New Orleans, you would hear a New Orleans type of song and a singer singing it. And uh, the uh, the theme song for Freedom Land was sung by uh, rockabilly and country star Johnny Horton, and he sang the song Johnny Freedom. Uh, that was uh, that made I think uh, got up to number sixty nine on the Billboard charts back then. Do you remember the lyrics? Uh, you wouldn't want me to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say the lyrics? Uh, the, not off the top of my head. But I remember Johnny Freedom. That's our boy. That was that was part of the chorus. <laughs> Um, and, and Johnny, uh, Johnny Horton actually appeared at Freedom Land that first year as part of a promotion, but unfortunately he never appeared again because later that year he died in a car accident. Uh, but, uh, anyone who's a fan of Freedom Land remembers that song. And like you said, there were some other stars that visited Freedom Land. You had Paul Anka, you had Bobby Darren, uh, Woody Herman. Was there any stand-out musician that directly correlated with, with Freedom Land that you can think of? Paul Anker uh, really became the mainstay. He performed there uh, more than any other performer uh, appeared at Freedom Land. And it, he, he was the highest paid for like a, a weekend gig than any performer up till that time. How much did he get? I think it was 10000 for a weekend or... Maybe a little more, and that's a lot in in 1961. Uh, Paul, I, I don't know the number of times he appeared there, but he was at Freedom Land constantly. Uh, but of course, he was also at, at that time in New York. He, he was a young kid. He was also uh, in uh, Palisades Amusement Park, so he, you know he was making the rounds. Uh, but he he more than anyone else is associated as an entertainer with Freedom Land. He also did a number of the jingles. Uh, the radio jingles uh, where he would sing Come On Out to Freedom Land. A little old tip from the anchor man. Take a trip to Freedom Land. Take a trip to Freedom Land. Take a date to Freedom Land. The moon bowl free and swinging wild. Performing night and day. Great shows night and day. There's me and Bobby Rydell for you. Yeah. Bobby Vinton rocking too. Yeah, yeah. And then there's Leslie Gore. Leslie Gore! Four seasons coming to town. Uh -huh. Gloria Lynn, James Brown. Uh -huh. All summer stars galore. Star, star, star. It's uh -huh. just one dollar at the gate. This There's rides at Freedom Land. Great rides at Freedom Land. New rides at Freedom Land. Woo! 
So th- that's why uh, he was so popular. And and uh, because his music was popular at the time, the disc jockeys in New York City who did their live remotes from Freedom Land uh, would interview him or would have him on in between performances. So that's why he was so popular. Let's talk about some of the Freedom Land merchandise. Uh, you write in your book that there were nine different styles of ashtrays, cigarette lighters. There was even a Freedom Land board game, which I would love to play. Uh, so um, do you know if any of the collectibles would be worth any money now? Some are if they're in pristine condition. Uh, you, you can see find them online. As some people mark them up uh, with unbelievable prices uh, that are not worth paying, but there are others that could go for $25, $30. I've seen the board game for as high as $500 because the board game is very unique. To find one in a, in a great condition with the box in a pretty good condition, they are rare. Uh, but you also will see certificates from fighting the Chicago fire. You also got certificates for riding the Indian War Canoe or riding the Northwest Fur Trapper Ride. Some of those pop up now and again. And uh, some are not reasonable by the people who are putting up. But sometimes you can find uh, glasses, like shot glasses or, or as uh, ashtrays. You can find them for reasonable prices. Now, Mike, in your book, Freedom Land USA, The Definitive History, um, we are building this, not amusement park, this theme park um, on what is now Co-op City. So why did developers choose to build in the Bronx? The land was owned, about 400 acres, was all marshland, was owned by William Zeckendorf. He was the real estate magnate of the day. He had uh, shopping centers, buildings going on not only across the country, but in other uh, countries around the world. And uh, he had obtained this land, which was originally owned by the family that owns Yonkers Raceway. And he did a trade off of properties with them in the early 1950s. He gave them a piece of property, uh, four square blocks down in Manhattan, which we know most recently uh, where the Orbox store was. And he uh, traded that to the uh, Yonkers Raceway family and got in, in turn this 400 acres because he always felt undeveloped land I could do anything with rather than a land that was already developed, already was zoned. So he just sat on it for many years. Now, Zeckendorf did know Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood, who was the creator and builder of Freedom Land. Wood had built Disneyland in the 1950s. He brought Walt Disney's imagination to life and actually got the park together for Walt. Uh, He and, and Walt Disney have a falling out. Wood leaves and starts his own company to make theme parks or build theme parks across the country. He now knew how to do this. And what was occurring is that local investors in various parts around the country said, we want a Disneyland-type attraction, too, for our community. We want to invest in it. We want to make the money. At, At that point, people were not traveling from Chicago to California to go to Disneyland. You were, it was car vacations, and maybe you went five states away, four states away, but you were not going to California. So the, these people in other locations, these investors, wanted similar type attractions, a similar type theme parks in their area, and Wood knew how to do this. Wood creates a park in Golden, Colorado, 
But after a year and a half, it fails because the local investors there uh, had financial problems and didn't know how to manage the park. Wood then creates a park outside of Boston called Pleasure Island. Again, it's local investors. Wood only comes in to build, create, and build the park. He did not manage the parks. That park lasted uh, 10 years, 59 to 69, but it went through several bankruptcies and eventually closes. He then drops down to the Bronx. He wants to put one in the New York City area. There's no land. We Even to, by today's standards, even back then, there was no land. There were two pieces of property within New York City that existed. One was Flushing Meadows. And Robert Moses, the great uh, uh, builder of, of, of New York, whether you like him or you don't like him based on what he did, uh, said, you're not putting it in Flushing Meadows because I'm bring, bringing the 1964-65 World's Fair there. So you can't have that land. The only other open land was this 400 acres in the Northeast Bronx. And William Zeckendorf already knew uh Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood, C.V. Wood, because Zeckendorf was an investor in Woods Park in Colorado. Zeckendorf was an investor in Pleasure Island up in Boston. So he said, I have the property for you. Put it here. Unfortunately, unlike the other properties, it was marshland. And Zeckendorf always had the thought, I could always do anything with vacant land. And in doing the research for the book, I did not find out until I found an article uh, through the New York Times in 1970 where William Zeckendorf commented about Freedom Land. He said, well, of course, you know, it was only a placeholder for the land. Oh. Co-op City was on the books in the late 1950s, as was other housing developments in the city, including a, a large one in Brooklyn and Rochdale Village in Queens. Well, this was in the Bronx because by the late 1950s, city planners already knew the South Bronx was going to collapse, and they wanted to keep all the people who had lived there from before World War II, the Italians, the Jews, the Poles, the Germans, they wanted to keep them all within the city because they wanted to keep the tax base in the city. So they had to build these other housing areas. And one that was marked off was for Zeckendorf's land in the Northeast Bronx. But they couldn't put these buildings there because it's marshland. They had to uh, were told that they had to drive pilings into the ground and monitor them for 20 years to see if the incoming outgoing tides of East Chester Bay would cause any shifting. They couldn't wait that long. So they got a variance. And I think I've, I've never been able to prove... Who did the arm twisting? But you have players such as Robert Moses, New York Mayor Wagner, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. You have William Zeckendorf, who carried a lot of weight. You also had the Teamsters Union, which was involved in Freedom Land. And, you know, Teamsters Union is always, whether its members, always looking for jobs, especially construction jobs. There was some arm, arm twisting done, and, the, and it came down that we'll, you will be granted a variance that if you can put something up on the property that's a couple of stories tall, does not have foundation cracks, does not have cracks in the walls, none of the buildings collapse, and it lasts for five years, we'll give you the variance to build Co-op City. Well, how tall are buildings in a theme park? We all know. We've all been to them. They're two, three stories tall. How long did Freedom Land last? Exactly five years. 
In October of 1964, Freedomland declares bankruptcy. Like the others before them, like the investor knew they might happen to have. Well, well, we also think that they they specifically ran Freedomland into the ground, especially in its several last seasons. Zeckendorf liked Freedomland. He wanted it to exist, but there was the thought of consolidating it from the 85 acres of attractions to 30 acres, which would have been the area where the shopping center in Co-op City is. There was also thought of raising it completely and moving it to Florida. But uh, in 1964-65, they already got wind down in Florida that Walt Disney was looking to put a park down there, so that that uh, nixed that idea. Uh, so Freedomland uh, was raised, and uh, at the bankruptcy hearings, uh, when they would, uh, it was decided, well, what are you? Go- what are your assets? What are, you- what are your liabilities? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with the land? The plans for Co-op City were presented. You don't, you couldn't present or create those plans that quickly, right? So it, it was all, uh, as Eckendorf said, Freedomland was a placeholder for the land. Uh, another issue that a lot of people our age have said over the years, and they've heard this by word of mouth, it's become an urban legend. The New York World's Fair was the final nail in the coffin and and caused the demise of Freedomland. The World's you Fair had nothing to do with it. You don't be- believe that. Because we know that Freedomland was, we now know that Freedomland was a placeholder for the land, that it only had to last five years, which was 64, which just had to correspond with the opening year of the New York World's Fair. And the World's Fair, yes, it attracted a lot of people at the time, but so did all the other attractions in New York at the time. Palisades, Coney Island, Rye Playland, and Westchester was still attracting people. Maybe not as much, uh, but the World's Fair was only going to last two years, and then it was going to be gone. So it, it was all a uh, it was all a plan uh, to build Co-op City. In fact, one of the one of the people who owned a, a theme park up in Lake George bought some of the attractions from Freedomland when it was selling off the attractions, and in in addition to buying the attractions, he he bought some back room materials such as desks and chairs, and he found in one of the desks something that was left behind. Two sets of books. Oh, so I uh, he I don't know what was in either of those sets of books, but he publicly stated Freedomland did not have to close. Freedomland was not in financial difficulty. It was just a placeholder, and they knew it even when they first built it. And and the one who did not know it was. Uh, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood. He had no idea because by the time Freedom Land opened in 1960, he was already developing his next park. And by 1961, he was opening Six Flags Over Texas, which still exists today because the original investors were financially sound. And that's why that park has lasted over 55 years. Um, so Wood didn't know it. The general public didn't know it. All of us uh, in New York City at the time when we heard Freedom Land was closing, it was gone like in a minute. We had no idea why. And like how much was the budget for uh, compared because the budget grew? The budget, well, the budget grew considerably. It, it, uh, the approximate budget when Freedom Land was built was $65 million, and that included leasing the land. 
This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with author and Fordham alum Mike Virgentino. We're discussing his book, Freedom Land USA, The Definitive History. It's a comprehensive look at the 1960s park, Freedom Land, that stood on what now is Co-op City in the Bronx. Mike, whatever happened to Woody? Well, as I said, Woody went and, and built Six Legs over Texas. He then uh, built uh, other attractions, but he worked for other companies. He also was uh, the partner who built a community out in Arizona known as Lake Havasu, which is a very popular residential community now. He's uh, in Lake Havasu is uh, the, the original London Bridge. It was brought over here at the time. It Woody, was his idea, right? Woody was the one who brought it over. Mm-hmm. Woody also was involved in the concept for the Riverwalk, which is very popular in San Antonio. So he had a number of things going on uh, after the the theme park uh, era, and uh, he was quite successful. And now um, he and Walt Disney, you know, way before Freedom Land was built, had 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 a falling out. Yes, and they kind of played down his relationship yes. with um, with uh, Disneyland for a while. Um, but it seemed like, or it seems like now, they're acknowledging him, Woody, a little bit more? If if, if you uh, talk to Disney, yes, they will acknowledge that he, that he had a significant role. Uh, it was because Walt Disney uh, was so in control of his company that with the falling out he had with Woody, uh, he he wanted nothing with what he mentioned in the company. What he was deep sixed in in Disney World, uh, you know, in 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 the Disney company. What was the falling out about? There's a, a number of different stories. Something Walt Disney was a a Midwestern uh, guy who who always felt he would do things on the up and up. Woody was a fast talker, you know, the salesman type. We in New York get that. Woody was originally from Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, we would understand where Woody was coming from and the different ideas he was trying to throw in there to make money, to make the uh, Disneyland successful when it first opened. Some of them didn't make Walt Disney feel very comfortable. So, uh, and, and Walt was also upset that Woody was sometimes getting the publicity or taking the credit for Disneyland, because Walt kept saying, it's my idea, it's my creation. Woody was getting a little too much acknowledgement. So there there were a number of things. Some said he may have even found a way through uh, the way he set up some of the vendors in Disneyland that he might have taken a little cut off the top. They call it embezzlement. He had asked Walt for a raise, and Walt had refused him. So, you know, there's all this back and forth, and they just... uh, some say Walt fired him. Some say Walt had his brother Roy Disney, who was the business brains of the Disney company, fire him. Some say Woody got wind of it and quit. <laughs> so we really don't Bunch know. Yeah, but there's, there's, there's two sides. Those who were loyal to Walt Disney side with Walt. Those who were loyal to Woody, people he had brought in to work at Disneyland, people he had known from previous, previous jobs, they stayed loyal to Woody. Mike, was Woody from the animated film Toy Story named after C.V. Wood? We don't know, but, <laughs> we, but you know, that that's a funny connection I, I make. It, it, when I saw that, I said, is the Disney company in its modern-day structure kind of acknowledging 
C.V. Wood because he all his friends knew him as either C.V. or Woody. I don't know. I've never been able to get to the bottom of that. But that, that that's an interesting concept. So, Mike, where do you think some of the attractions from Freedomland ended up? Some of the uh, attractions were scattered out to various parks in the country, mostly in the northeast or uh, down in Florida, and even as far uh, west as uh, Ohio. If anyone wants to see any remnant of Freedom Land today, they would need to go up to Lincoln, New Hampshire. And there's a, a family park there called Clark's Trading Post. The original train station from old Chicago is their train station today. A lot of the bricks for their buildings were Freedom Land bricks. Uh, lamp posts, their be the benches, the park benches are all there. Even a couple of the trash cans <laughs> I found up there also. There was also another train station. When we talk about the trains, there were two stations in the park. There was the old Chicago, and it would drop you off in San Francisco. There was a dummy train station in, Sa in Santa Fe, in the old southwest section, which was really just a one room. And that's where... Uh, all the train robbers would hide out. So as they, the train came by slowly, they would jump up on board to rob the passengers. That train station also ended up at Clark's, and you can see it uh, there today. Um, Why did it go all the way up there? Well, after uh, they filed for bankruptcy, uh, other uh, amusement areas came in to see what attractions or, or, or not even attractions what parts of buildings? Did they want electrical wiring? Did they want plumbing? All of that had to be auctioned off or sold to help pay off any liabilities. And um, the, uh, the Clark family came down, uh, and they came a little later, when most, as they say, when most of the better stuff was gone. Uh, and uh, the two sons, they were teenagers at the time, would spend all week here during the very cold 1965 winter, and they actually lived in some of the standing Freedom Land buildings, which had no heat at the time. And uh, they would break things apart during the week, and their father would drive down the tractor trailer, uh, like on a Saturday or Sunday. They would load it up, and the father would take it back to New Hampshire, and the boys would stay and begin the next process of, of gathering more stuff. A couple of the dock rides ended up at Cedar Point. Over the, the last 10 to 15 years, Cedar Point has really become a thrill park with uh, over 16, 17 uh, coasters. But Cedar Point originally goes back over 100 years and was originally a park much like the old theme parks or amusement parks back in the 20s and 30s. And a lot of it was similar to Freedomland. They had a showboat. They had a train. Um, but two of the dock rides went to Cedar Point. One was Earthquake, and the other one was uh, the Buccaneer Ride, which they renamed the Pirate Ride. And both of them lasted about another 25, 28 years at Cedar Point. Uh, several of the attractions ended up in Storytown, which was, uh, Storytown USA was uh in a, a park in Lake George. A fellow by the name of Charlie Wood, who was no relation to Freedomland's C.V. Wood. I was just going to ask. <laughs> you know, no relation. He owned uh, Storytown USA and Gaslight Village. 
And kids who went up there with their parents in the 50s and 60s will remember these two parks very well. Storytown still exists, but it has morphed into an amusement park called The Great Escape. But Charlie uh, purchased an attraction that the kids loved at Freedomland called Danny the Dragon. Uh, Danny the Dragon was a, think of like a tram, in the form of uh, a dragon head, and the uh, cars were his tail. And it would uh, go on a concrete pathway through story through a story town. Danny went up there and lasted many years at Storytown. I found out only recently that Danny's head, his dragon head, which was, there were two versions. There was a green and yellow version and a, and a red version. The green and yellow version ended up in Storytown. While it was painted all black, it was put into the man-made pond in, uh, in what is now the Great Escape and was now par part of its uh, Halloween Fright Fest. If you go to Six Flags Great Adventure in Jackson, New Jersey, you will look at the poles or the towers of the sky ride there. Those poles came from Freedom Land. They were part of uh, the Tucson Mining Company or Bucket Sky Ride that was at Freedom Land. Uh, so you will you will find some remnants around. Why do you think people are still so curious about this amusement park? Uh, I find two reasons, or maybe three reasons. First, it's people who remember it. The baby boomers who are old enough to experience it, who did not go to or could not go to Disneyland back then, but have very fond memories uh, of what Freedom Land was all about. Uh, they, they, they just find the, uh, the park fascinating and they love the memories of it. Another is people, even if they don't remember the park, from the Bronx or the greater New York metropolitan area. They hear stories, as one woman told me, my parents had their first date at Freedom Land. So as, as these generations are doing their family history, where did mom and dad first meet? Sometimes Freedom Land is coming up, so they want to know, what was this Freedom Land that they went to on their dates? So so that comes up. I even read um, in some of the comments about the book, like people were so excited about it because for whatever reason, they never had an opportunity to go and always wanted to go and said this is like a journey to them, like out of a place that they, they wanted to go to so bad. That is correct. To. Several people have commented. They said, uh, Dad wouldn't take me there. He said it was too expensive. Well, yes, by today's standards it wasn't, but maybe back then, depending on what if, if you were holding down two jobs and salaries were small, maybe it was too expensive. How much did it cost to get in? Uh, it varied from year to year. It was anything from a dollar a person to uh, $2.95, and all the attractions were free. You know, so it varied. But again, you would have to buy uh, lunch, and you know, you paid a fifty cents to park. Uh, back then, it was a lot for some people. So, uh, so they find it fascinating. Also. People who are younger but are into theme park history. Freedom Land for many years has been left off the map. I think part of it had to do because it had such a short run. Another thing had to do with uh, uh, Disney's treatment of C.V. Wood and kind of dismissing him. Uh, so that park kind of got lost in, in the timeline of theme parks. So bringing it back, people are now bringing it back on the Facebook page, bringing it back in this book, uh, 
people are now seeing where it fit in the timeline. And again, as I mentioned, how some of the attractions went to Cedar Point. They're now saying, oh, that's where it came from. Who created it for Freedom Land? Oh, that's a company that also created attractions for Disneyland. So, so they're now seeing all the tie-ins, all the same people who were involved along the way, whether they were designers, attraction creators, uh, even employees. We had an employee at, at Freedom Land. He, he portrayed the marshal for several years. He spent many years working for Disney afterwards, uh, working for Disney around the world doing their shows. And he says to this day, there has never been a park that has been more wonderful than Freedom Land. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of interest of people out there. And it, it just, it, it's nostalgia and it also fills a void for some. I'd like to thank my guest, author, Fordham alum, and WFUV alum, Mike Virgentino. His book, Freedom Land USA, The Definitive History, is out now by Theme Park Press. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Now this may be Indian Territory, and it may look like the Old West, but the time is today, and the place is Freedom Land, a big entertainment park in the Bronx, in the state of New York, just half an hour by subway from Times Square in New York City. Here they built the places and the buildings representing 200 years of American history, and riding shotgun across the Great Plains is only one part of the story of our country. Hey! What's happening over there in Chicago? Fire! Look at that! It's the Chicago Fire of 1871. Hurry up, men! We're going to need volunteers for this one. Everybody man the pump! We've got to get water on the fire or the whole city will go. Faster, men! Keep that...